Amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4 as we continue our series from the book of Exodus entitled Free at Last. I'll title this sermon, Therefore Go. Therefore Go. Listen to the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter, chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand, put out your hand, and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. They will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice. You shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you, you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and shall teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be to him as you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and uh, had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. Moses took the staff of God in his hand, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not be able to let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So, let, so he let him alone. 
It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went, gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you to come by the power of your spirit as we all sit under the authority of your word. We need you to teach us. We need you to transform us. We need you to conform us to the image of your son. And so we pray that you would, in fact, do that, Lord, that you would bless us this morning in and through your word by the power of the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt compelled by the Lord to do something that you weren't eager to do? Have you ever felt compelled by the Lord to do something that you weren't eager to do? Perhaps you felt that inner prompting of the Spirit moving you to speak or to act on behalf of God's Word, but you knew that doing so would come at a cost. I'm talking about those times where you you could feel the weight of the responsibility and the challenges that lay ahead if you should answer the call. If you haven't been there and you're a Christian, don't worry. Just keep on living and you will discover that the call of God on our lives, the call to be ambassadors in the world, carrying into it the announcement of his salvation, carries with it those occasions where the weight of the commission of God and the cost of that commission will eat alive whatever zeal you thought you had for the job. Moses is facing one of those occasions. He, he's been commissioned by God to, to, carry, to carry a message, to carry a message of salvation on the one hand to a people wearied by years of oppression. He knows that the task of convincing them that the hour of their deliverance has arrived will be difficult. He knows that they are tired, that they have been adapted to years of navigating abuse of power, angry at the injustice that they and their children have endured for centuries, and prone, prone to skepticism about any promise of deliverance, especially from one that they perceive as an outsider, who who they would likely believe doesn't know anything about the experiences they have had to endure. In addition to this, Moses has to carry this message of salvation to oppressor as well. He, He has to go tell a country and its leader whose customs and practices and policies have defaced the image of God in another people group, 
raise their own sense of ethnic superiority at the expense of that people group, stolen their labor for economic benefit, and kept generations of that people group impoverished, isolated, and afraid. He has to go tell that oppressor that God has now come down to deliver that people from bondage. And not only, not only them, by the way, but as we will discover later on in the narrative of Exodus, a multitude of other people groups as well, including Egyptians themselves. God has come down not only to save his people, but through them all peoples from the lie of those oppressive customs and practices and policies of Pharaoh and his empire and into the worship and service of the only true and living God. To carry out this call, Moses would need more than brute force, which he discovered in his early adulthood. To carry out this call, Moses would need more than an education in the best institutions of Egypt. To carry out this call, Moses would need more than training in the Sinai desert shepherding his father-in-law's flocks. No, no, no. To carry out the word of God's salvation into a world filled with all kinds of oppressive forces, God's people need not only the message of God's salvation, they need the God of that salvation. To put it bluntly, none of us, none of us have the resources for this commission in and of ourselves. None of us, none of us, none of us have shoulders that can bear this responsibility ourselves without the Lord's help. We simply can't fulfill the Lord's commission without the Lord. And it's his commitment to be with Moses, his commitment to be also with us that fuels our ability to carry out the commission he has given us to proclaim his salvation, which we now know has come in Jesus Christ for all those who trust in him for salvation. Yet Moses and the elders had to be led into this trust, had to have that trust strengthened in their interactions with God. And that is what we see happening in this text. In this text, God reveals to us the ways he will be with Moses and Aaron and the elders to enable them to carry out the commission he has given first to Moses and then through Moses to them. And since the same God that was with them is with us, this text is instructive for us as we carry out God's commission in this world. So how does God, how does God reveal himself to be with us in the commission that he has given to us. Well, first of all, uh, he reveals himself to be with us through his power over unbelief, through his power over unbelief. In verses 1 to 16, Moses continues this back and forth with God uh, regarding embracing uh, the commission that God had given him to go and bring the people of, uh, of Israel out of Egypt. And it's clear from, from the back and forth that Moses is concerned chiefly with the issue of unbelief. Only it's not his belief uh, that is of concern, but rather the belief of the people of Israel and the belief of Pharaoh. While it's clear uh, from verse 1 that 
Uh, the Israelites' potential unbelief in Moses' message is of chief concern. Moses most certainly would have had the unbelief of Pharaoh in mind as well. After all, he had already been told by God that Pharaoh was not going to let the people of Israel go willingly. And, and, and he was going to repeat that to Moses later on in this chapter. And so the issue, the, the, the issue is not that Moses does not believe God. The issue is that he's going to have to go to two groups of people who he fully expects will not listen to the message of God's salvation. The the Israelites on the one hand and Pharaoh and his administration on the other hand present Moses with two difficult audiences. Uh, Moses is anticipating, he's anticipating that that he is not likely to get an amen from either of these crowds. In the case of both, there will need to be some serious convincing. And God's responses to Moses in the back and forth are intended to communicate to Moses that the power for that convincing will not come from Moses, but from the Lord himself. From the signs that God gives to Moses to the assistance of Aaron, his brother, God communicates to Moses that it is the power of the Lord that will be at work through Moses that will move God's salvation plan forward. In fact, I want to suggest to you this morning that the miraculous signs as well as the provision of Aaron as his assistant is as much about convincing Moses of his power as it is about convincing the two people groups I just referenced. Moses believes that God has come down to to deliver, but it appears from the back and forth that he is trusting more in the power of unbelief than he is in the power of God to break through that unbelief. And I wonder… I wonder if in our calling, in our calling to take the message of God's salvation into the world, this message that sets the oppressed free, if we too are not more trusting in the unbelief that we see around us than in the power of God to be with us to break through it. I wonder if our complacency at times to proclaim the message in the face of injustice, in the face of oppression, in the face of abuse, in the face of violence, isn't also driven by the fear of the unbelief of the audiences we are called to proclaim it to as well. Family members, church leaders, public officials, Facebook friends, Twitter followers, and the like. If we're honest, we don't want to face down that unbelief and pay the cost that that unbelief brings. So the message in the signs, the message in the miraculous signs that God gives to Moses in verses 2 to 9, they demonstrate God's power. Moses' staff turning into a snake and then back into a staff when he grabbed it showed God's power over a creature that naturally instilled fear in many because of its potential danger. Moses' hand which turns leprous when he places it in his cloak and is healed when he places it back in his cloak, shows God's power over a disease which often led to social isolation and all the attendant struggles of that isolation. And of course, the water from the Nile, which turns into blood, shows God's power over a body of water that because of its vast benefits to the country of Egypt and the surrounding nations was seen 
seen by them as a God itself. And thus God turning that water into blood shows his power over this supposed God. And if Moses thought, if Moses thought that Aaron's speaking abilities would prove to be the answer to his own objection about not being eloquent when he should, he should think again. By the way, there's no indication that Moses had a speech impediment or that he was unable to carry his own in terms of intellect or speech. Perhaps he thought there were others more gifted than him in this area, but he was certainly gifted himself, as the rest of the narrative of Exodus, I think, makes clear. But if he thought that Aaron was being provided because he spoke better, God makes clear, makes clear in verse 15 that that's not the reason he's given Aaron to be his assistant. Instead, he makes clear that he and, that Moses and Aaron's success will not be because of their intellectual or speaking abilities, but rather because of his power at work through their mouths. You, you will be successful not because you speak well, but because my power will be at work through your speaking what I tell you. The same is true for us. The power for our commission to proclaim the salvation of God is from God and not from us. Thus, it is not us that breaks through the unbelief of the oppressed or the oppressor. It is the power of God. It is the power of God at work with us. Amen, people of God. In our call to proclaim the salvation of God in this world, I want to tell you this morning, we will come up against unbelief. And we will come up against unbelief both among the oppressed and those who participate in their oppression. Among the mistreated and those who participate in their mistreatment. Among the marginalized and those who participate in their marginalization. Among the spiritually lost and those who participate in leading them astray. Whose unbelief frightens you? Whose unbelief frightens you? Whose unbelief are you afraid to encounter because you fear the cost of standing up against it? Whose unbelief frightens you? Some, some of our resistance to preaching the gospel in spaces where sin and death, violence and oppression, unrighteousness and injustice have reared their heads is our fear of the unbelief of others. Are you afraid of your family? Afraid that they will think that you have lost your mind because your commitment to God's salvation now has you thinking and speaking in ways that don't fit the family's political and cultural heritage. Are you afraid of your friends, perhaps for the same reasons? Maybe you're fearful, fearful of your church family, fearful that proclaiming God's salvation, the salvation that sets the oppressed free, will not be received with open arms because they too are struggling to square what you are saying with their own political and cultural heritages. <laughs> or maybe it's the unbelief of the spiritually lost, the oppressed, the marginalized, the mistreated that you're afraid of. You don't have the courage to confront the anger, the cynicism, the doubt. 
the fear that is often expressed by folk in those camps. You know, the oppressed are not always happy to see us. There's not a red carpet rolled out for you by folk in those camps. Sometimes through years of being wearied, they are cynical, doubting, afraid. And sometimes we're afraid to face that cynicism, that doubt, that anger that fear, because we think, I don't know what to say. And I got good news for you this morning. You don't know what to say. So you know what God has done? He's told you what to say. And has promised to be with your mouth when you say what he has told you to say. Amen, people of God. Let me encourage you today. In proclaiming his salvation to others, God is not counting on you. He's not counting on your power to break through the unbelief. He is counting on his own power. And that power, brothers and sisters, is with you. In fact, uh, in fact, uh, God has not only said it is with us, he has said that that power is in us through the power of the Spirit of God that is now in us through the work of Jesus Christ. Don't let the unbelief of others cripple you. You have a message to proclaim that the world of both the oppressed and the oppressor needs to hear. Amen, people of God. So God reveals himself as being with us through his power to break through unbelief. But he also shows himself to be with us through his protection of us in our negligence through his protection of us in our negligence. The, the narrative now takes us back to when Moses was in Midian. Uh, prior to setting out on the call to return to Egypt uh, to bring the Israelites out, at that point, Moses uh, went to his father-in-law he asked, uh, asking not so much for permission but for his blessing. After all, Moses is leaving his job, and he's taking Jethro's daughter and his grandchildren away. And so the blessing he sought, he receives. Moses is further strengthened by God making him aware that, that, that the Pharaoh who had desired to kill him, as well as those who sought his life, were now dead. So Moses then is, is, is given further instructions in verses 21 to 23 about what to do before the new Pharaoh and what to say. As a side note, I should say that it's not surprising that this new pharaoh and his administration continue with the oppressive policies of the previous pharaohs. Oppression and injustice doesn't just go away with time. Time, in fact, does not heal all wounds. It's only through confrontation with that which causes the wounds that the wounds can be healed. Indeed, this is part of the understanding of the hardening of pharaoh's heart that we learn about in verse 21. Douglas Stewart comments on this in his commentary. He says this. He says, in Egyptian thinking, the weighing, evaluating of the ib, 
by the gods at the time of a person's death was a means of determining whether or not one is a sinner, and therefore whether or not one can go to the Egyptian equivalent of heaven. The Egyptian pharaoh was supposed to be a pure person, a divine manifestation of the gods, and one whose sovereignty over the people was credentialized in part by the purity of his ib, his heart. The idea then that Yahweh could do whatever he wanted with Pharaoh's heart and specifically could harden it, therefore, was both an evidence of Yahweh's control of all things, including the mightiest monarch of the day, and also evidence that Yahweh had done what the Egyptian, uh, Egyptians thought the gods would usually do. He had weighed the heart and decided whether its owner was worthy of eternal life or not. <laughs> I'll let the theologians grapple with how these verses fit into the whole doctrine of election thing. But my point is that by dealing with Pharaoh's stubborn heart, God was confronting that which had created this whole mess of oppression to begin with, the sinful and stubborn hearts of human beings. And God was going to confront that stubbornness and turn that stubbornness into the occasion for the display of his power to conquer it. Pharaoh's heart is not in his own hands. It's in the hands of the Lord. But it's verses 24 to 26 that present us with another instance in which God reveals himself as with Moses in the commission that he has given to him. Moses also has a heart issue one that would have had serious consequences had it not been addressed. Moses, it appears, had not had his firstborn son, Gershom, circumcised. And the story of verses 24 to 26 do not appear to indicate that Moses was unaware of his responsibility. Circumcision was a requirement in many cultures in the day in some form, but it was specially connected to the covenant that God had made with his people. It was a sign and a seal of his covenant promises to be a God to his people and to their children. Indeed, to not be circumcised was very serious with God, who warned Abraham that the person who was not circumcised would be cut off from his people. And so I believe with others that the threat then in Exodus 4 is on Moses' son, Gershom. Moses, it appears had been circumcised, but he had not circumcised his son. Douglas Stewart, again, says this in his commentary. Let me read this to you. He says, since Moses had not yet done his part in regard to Gershom's circumcision, God accepted Zipporah's decisive and pious actions in circumcising her son as an appropriate substitute so that God's chosen yet reluctant and headstrong prophet could continue his assignment to lead the Israelites out of bondage. It was the quick action of Zipporah then that not only saved her son, but saved Moses the punishment of losing his son on account of his disobedience. That Zipporah knew, all, knew almost immediately what this was about also indicates that this was not the first time that Gershom's circumcision or lack thereof had come up in their conversations. Zipporah intervene doing what Moses should have done. And the reader should not miss the import here. God provided an appropriate substitute to work on behalf of those who were in danger. Through Zipporah, 
God protected both Gershom and Moses, showing himself to be a God who cares about his people, a God who watches over them, a God who protects them, a God who saves them, not just when their hearts are fully engaged to him, but even when they are not. And isn't this the ground of our salvation? (laughs) But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What gives us the freedom to carry out the commission that God has given to us to proclaim his salvation in the world is the promise of his protection the knowledge of his salvation that has saved us from wrath, that Moses, that Moses places this story about himself in this book, says that Moses, unlike what we read about Pharaoh, came to understand his failure, repent of it, and find God's salvation. Amen, people of God. The call here is both a warning and an encouragement. It's a warning not to neglect the covenant responsibilities that God has given to us as his people. The sacraments, worship, caring for each other, building each other up in the faith, mission, all the responsibility that God has given to us are for his glory and our good. And they strengthen us for the task that God has given to us to proclaim his salvation in the world. As you examine your own life, and see places where your own commitment to these things is not strong. Can I invite you to do something? Ask the Lord through the Spirit of God to make you willing and obedient to the spiritual responsibilities that he has given to us. Ask the Lord to lead you in repentance and faith as he led Moses. But there's also encouragement not of something to do, but of something to believe. The Lord was not going to let his plans for Moses be thwarted. God had given Moses an assignment, and he was going to do what was needed to get Moses to and through that assignment that he had given him, even if it meant confronting Moses in the way that he did. Think of stories like the story of Jonah running from his call to preach to Nineveh, the story of Elijah running from Jezebel. God's plan of redemption was not going to be thwarted. Even in the lives of prophets who were running from their calling and not fully engaging it as they should, God was faithful to carry through to the fulfillment of their calling. He will do the same in our lives as his people. He will watch over us to carry us through to the completion of our calling as well. Amen, people of God. God's God's power over unbelief, God's protection, even in your negligence, and God's promotion of his name through our obedience. Listen to verses… Uh, reflect on verses 27 to 31 as we close. In those verses, we discover what happens when we are actually obedient to God's call 
to proclaim his salvation in the world, a salvation that sets the oppressed free. After he reunited with his brother Aaron, Moses tells him all that God commanded him to speak and all the signs that God had given him to perform. And of course, it's implied from the text uh, that Aaron was on board. So the two of them gathered the elders of God's people together. They conveyed all that God had said to them and performed before them all the signs that God had given to them to convince the people that he had indeed come down to deliver them and had sent Moses and Aaron to them. And then in verse 31, we read this, and the people believed. And when they, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Wait a minute. W- weren't they supposed to reject Moses' message? W- 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 weren't they supposed to, 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 to not listen to his voice? What, 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 what then had turned them, what, what, what had turned them from, 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 from unbelievers to believers? It wasn't Moses and Aaron's eloquence. It wasn't their skill. It was their obedience in simply saying and doing what God had told them to say and had told them to do. Pay attention to the text. It says, when they heard that I am was with them and had seen their affliction, they believed and submitted themselves to the Lord. People don't truly come to faith through some extraordinary feat that we perform. They don't come because our words are impressive, or because our buildings are impressive, or because our budget is impressive, or because our ministries are impressive. People come to church for those reasons, but they don't come to faith as a result of those things. I'm going to say it again. People may come to church for those reasons, but they don't come to faith because of those things. No, God uses the simple obedience to speak and act in accordance with His Word to move people from doubt to faith. What people oppress, what people oppress by sin and death and the circumstances of this life need to see and hear from Christians is the Word of the Lord's salvation. They need to see and hear from Christians who carry the message, the Lord has visited His people and has seen their affliction. What what we are carrying, brothers and sisters, into this world is a name, the name that has been highly exalted, the name that is above every name, the name at which every knee shall bow, the name at which every tongue shall confess, the name that charms our fears, the name that bids our sorrows cease, the name that is music in a sinner's ear, the name that is life and health and peace. You know that name, for it is the name that has set you free, the name that has brought you from death to life the name that has broken the power of reigning sin in your life, the name that has set you a prisoner free, the name that through His blood has made you and me the foulest clean, the name whose blood availed for us. And that name is Jesus. And that name is salvation for all who call upon it. Amen, people of God. And so the call here is to be obedient, to carry the word of that salvation into the world. It's to trust 
that as we go, God will use our speaking and acting to make His name known. He will, through our declaring His salvation and word and action, He will loose the bonds of wickedness. He will undo the strap of the yoke. He will let the oppressed go free, and He will break every yoke. He will bind up the brokenhearted. He will proclaim freedom to the captives. He will proclaim release from darkness for the prisoners. Brothers and sisters, the issue is not whether God will use our proclamation of His salvation to draw people to Himself. The issue is whether or not we will be obedient to carry that message into the world because people need to hear it. And from the story in front of us, this message wasn't just going to be proclaimed to the Israelites. It was going to be proclaimed to and among the Egyptians, as well as among all the other people groups who were going to hear of the Lord through Moses and Aaron's testimony before Pharaoh. People of God, embrace the call of God to carry His name into the world. The oppressed, the mistreated, the marginalized, the spiritually lost are waiting to hear that there is a God who saves, who has saved in the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't sit on that word. Don't be afraid to speak it and act it. Proclaim it, share it, speak it, and God will use it. You know what will happen? People will come and worship Him. Amen, people of God. God is, God is with us in the commission He has given us. And He shows Himself faithful to us in His, in his power over unbelief, His protection, even in our negligence, His promotion of His name through our bearing testimony about Him to those whom He has sent us to. And so with this, let me close with the words of the Great Commission and the promise of Jesus in that commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Amen, people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise, and we give you glory, and we give you honor, and we give you thanks, because you have commissioned us to go out into the world and proclaim your salvation in it. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for this word in Exodus 4, and we thank you, Lord, for the ways that you reveal yourself to be with us in the commission that you have given to us. I pray for your people this morning to be strengthened through the power of the Spirit, Lord, to walk out in this world in all the places where you have set them and called them, and that they would have confidence and courage through the Spirit to proclaim your truth, to proclaim your name, to proclaim your salvation in all the spaces, Lord, where oppression and injustice and sin and death are reigning. Father, be at work through your people individually and be at work through your church corporately to make your name known, we pray. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God.